0: This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash freelancership. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir duty to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11 elixir sips learn elixir with a pro find out more at elixirsips.com. this episode is sponsored by less accounting let's face it there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate one of the things that i really hate is bookkeeping less accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month if you're interested go to freelancershow.com bookkeeping to go check it out like we got myself and three viewers. I'm assuming two of those are you guys and we have one extra person. There was a tweet on Twitter that I kind of like to go over to start things off. Cool. So on the Freelancer Show account, Stephen McDonald basically said, several guys on the Freelancer Show have mentioned that clients pay a deposit up front and that it weeds people out. And then uh, Simon Stewart replied and said, take on a small unit of work and test your delivery and their payment process. And then he also said that he doesn't agree with the deposit idea because it takes trust to pay up front. And then Stephen also pointed out that we've also talked about charging by day or week instead of for hours. So I'm I'm curious, you know, on the prepayment thing, is it an issue to get people to prepay?
1: Uh, I mean, the, the person who wrote that in that made the comment about that it takes trust to pay up front is not a negative. It's a positive. Uh-huh. You want that. You want them to trust you. If they don't trust you already, it's probably a bad idea to work with them. So trying to think back if I've ever had a client who paid me 100% up front and the project didn't go well, and I can't think of one which I think probably has a lot to do with the fact that we already had trust built up. So the next obvious question is how do you build up trust before you're on a project together? But, you know, we can talk about that too. But I don't think that's a negative. I think it's a good thing. I think you should have mm-hmm. trust built up before you start working together.
0: Yeah, I mean, part of my issue is that I've not gotten paid. And so in certain circumstances, I also just kind of come from the place of, you know, who's who's going to take the risk, and I like your point, though, that in some ways it's not who's going to take the risk, but it's do we have enough of a relationship of trust to, you know, you pay me and I do your work.
1: Right. The way I set it up, uh, we're both taking a risk. In fact, I'm taking much more of a
0: risk by getting
1: paid up front 100% than I would be by doing an hourly estimate, which is basically time and materials. Uh, so when I do a fixed bid and I say, look, I'm going to take on the risk risk of scoping this project. Uh, So you don't have to worry about getting nickel and dimed or getting killed with change requests or anything like that. So I'm taking that risk. I'm the one that's saying I'm the expert. I know how to estimate a software project. You don't have to worry about that. That's not your job. Your job is to sell cars or run your school or whatever it is that you do. And you worry about that. I'll worry about this. And in exchange for that, since I'm giving you a fixed price, uh, I want the money up front. And that helps insulate me against risk a little bit, but that's not really why I do it. Uh, Really why I do it is just get the money off the table completely, and then we just never have to worry about it again. So someone who's listening to this should make special note of the fact that when, at least in my model where I give a fixed bid, I'm not going to hit them later with like, oh, you didn't tell me you wanted this or you didn't tell me you wanted that. So if you're doing that, if you're doing an estimate and trying to get a deposit on the estimate, that's a completely different thing.
0: Yeah, I have actually, you know, when I was working hourly and when I was working, so hourly, yeah, I would get a deposit. And that way, for them, it was just a guarantee, look, then I can keep working if you're a little bit late because I have I have enough up front to where I can just keep going. And so for me, it was just to smooth over the speed bumps. With weekly billing, doing that, I make them pay the week up front. And then if they're not happy with it, I just like the way that Curtis set that up. So it's like look, we've lowered the risk on both ends because, you know, it's a, it's a week's worth of money and if you're not happy with it I'll still refund it, but then, you know, I'm only taking the risk on the week and you're only taking a risk on the week's worth of dollars. Mhm. Right, and that's kind of how I do it and the other thing is I do I charge, you know, 100%
2: for the week up front. And that's also to basically take my schedule for that week because I have X many clients I could sell to if they actually you know, if they just want to work with me, like I could say, well, I have this other client who's willing to pay me now. You want to wait till the end, and you know, I bill you and invoice you later. So why, you know, why would I want to work with that second client? And so that's that's kind of the other reason for my the way I do it. But yeah, I mean, you you have to have trust. I mean, you shouldn't even do business with someone if you don't trust them. If you don't trust them, like you're just opening yourself up for a world of hurt if you get into mm-hmm. into business and start exchanging money or talking about stuff with someone.
1: Yeah, I've often said that I wouldn't work with somebody I didn't want to have drinks with. It's served me very well. (laughs) Yep. It just makes your life better. I mean, on top of it, you don't have that, you know, you know that feeling when you get that soul sucking email and you just like dread it all day and you don't respond to it and you just like, you're having this fight in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while for me to have one of those, but I remember losing sleep over those. You're like having the, you're like, oh, I'm going to have to have a phone call with this guy and he's going to say this and then I'll say that and then he's going to say this and I'll say, it's like a nightmare. You just have yeah. to just attract people that are your ideal personality type and do everything you can to attract cool people, and it resonates through your whole business because then they're going to love you, more likely to love you, more likely to be happy with your work, less likely to micromanage you, more likely to refer you to their friends. I mean, it has so many awesome benefits. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do because you have to somehow create a relationship with these people before you're working with them, but you can do that. I mean, you know, you could have a podcast. You could have a blog. You could be um, answering people's questions on Quora. You could have a book. There's a million things you can do to establish a relationship with people, even online, so I think it's well worth doing it that way.
0: That's interesting. I mean, we, we kind of talked about conversations that sell, but are there particular types of conversations that build trust more than others? The basic thing for me is to just help people all the time, Mm -hmm. like share share your
1: passion, find people who have problems that you solve and type up a few paragraphs, you know, in a subreddit or in a Facebook group or something like that, help them out. And then, you know, maybe you turn it into a blog post and get a little bit more mileage out of it later. It's, you know, it's not like a waste of time or something. If people think, oh, I haven't got time for that. If you're helping people all the time, then they're just going to get used to trusting you. I mean, Eric, you did all those plugins for Redmine, right? Didn't I mean, I'm sure you had the same kind of reaction where people just automatically trusted you. Like, you're the Redmine guy, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it got to the point where a client or a lead would come to me and they'd be like, we're already running half a dozen of your plugins. We want to hire you to do this. Like, that was it. There was no, like, we're talking to other developers or, you know, kind of the dance you do when you first meet someone. It was just, we want to hire you. Can you work with our terms? And I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I get the same thing from speaking gigs or people that bought my books. They'll just be like, you know, they just basically call me up. They're like, we're not even considering someone else. We just don't know if we can afford mm-hmm.
0: you. Yeah, and I get that from the podcasts. So I'll have somebody say, oh, I heard you talk about this on the podcast. Or I know that you're capable of doing this because I watched a video that you, you, you did or something like that. And so mm-hmm. you start out with that level of trust because people know who you are. They have a rapport with you even if you don't necessarily know them.
1: Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It sounds like I think we all offer refunds too. So, yeah. you know, like you can really mitigate a lot of risk if you want. And there's a thing that I find people that bill by the hour especially are super afraid of, and that's being vulnerable. They feel like clients are stupid and the scope is always creeping all over the place and it's never their fault. It's always the client's fault. And they want to take out the the hourly billing baseball bat and be like, Told you you shouldn't change that. Now you're getting these big invoices. We're going to go overestimate and it's your fault. And that is, I can't do business like that. It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. I mean, you can, but it's a nightmare. If you're doing that, if, you, if you're like, like a, a classic example is I had this client who's super chatty. He was really, really friendly guy. He would, You know, we'd, we'd have these long phone calls about, you know, some feature or whatever and we'd build it out. And kind of, we almost pair program it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we'd get off on one of those epic sessions. it'd Be like, you know, we'd do four hours after lunch, and then he'd want to talk for like another hour. He'd just tell me about his weekend and stuff like that. And at the time, I was working for someone, so I had to. I had a problem. I'm like, okay, I just spent two hours talking, or an hour anyway, talking to this guy. That now I have to make up for later with billable work, you mm-hmm. know, because I had a quota that I had to make per week, you know. And I said to him, I'm like, look, I'd love to talk, but I, I just can't talk because I'm going to have to bill you for it. And he'd be like, oh yeah, and he'd be better about it for a while. And then he'd start doing it again. And so at one point, I just started billing him for it. And you can imagine how he felt right. I mean, that just destroyed <laughs> our relationship. It basically destroyed the relationship. And when you think about it, here's a client who we're so tight that he wants to tell me about like, what he did with his wife that weekend and the kids and stuff. And now I have to turn around and basically make that stop because of hours. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's the exact thing you want your customers to be doing with you. Mm-hmm. So anyway.
0: It's, it's funny though because I've had clients that were kind of the same way and under some circumstances they'd get billed for it and others they weren't. And uh, a lot of times it just basically boiled down to um, I'd start the clock at the beginning of the meeting and I'd stop the clock at the end of the meeting. And basically it just boiled down to whether or not I remembered to stop the clock or roll back some of the time. <laughs> and sometimes it would be inter- interspersed with the entire conversation about so, you know so we talk about the app and then we talk about uh what's going on with his grandkids and then we talk about another part of the app and then we talk about you know whatever else he had going on and yeah so it basically it was like okay well how much you know how much do i bill or not bill for that and that's the thing i really like about getting away from the hourly billing which mm-hmm. is what you're saying jonathan is that then it doesn't matter right You know, because I got paid for this week, or I got paid for the project, and so if I sit and chat with them for a little while, then big deal. And I'm working with somebody that I like to talk to, otherwise I'm going to be trying to find excuses to disappear after we've done the business. Yeah, but you'll still run into
2: that problem, or at least I do, was it Mondays I commit to like, I'm going to do these, we'll say five items, and you know, if it ends up like they want to have a lot of meetings, or they want to have some back and forth, like, weekly billing, that's fine. Like They're not going to get charged more and I don't have to worry about meeting my hours but if it's so much that I can only now get the four of the five, like it can be a difficult conversation of like, okay, because you talk so much, now we can't do that feature that you really need. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I don't do, I do no time basis. That's
2: because of that reason. I just,
1: I mean, weekly is way better than hourly because it, it blurs a lot of that and it also gets your customers out of your calendar a lot to a large degree. But, yeah, they're
0: not nitpicking over Yeah, time.
1: Every little thing, but Eric's right. Like, if you get to the end of the week and they're expecting more work to be done, you have a similar kind of problem where they're like, "Geez, we spent three thousand bucks or whatever it was, and we were expecting to get more done. What can you do for us?"
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, and you still have to similar. It's it's less painful, I think. I've I've never done weekly billing. I've done prepayment for like blocks of hours, which is pretty similar, I guess. But the way I approach it is because you still I still have to worry about scope creep, of course, because. I'm just getting one flat fee. So if they are super chatty or they try and change scope like crazy, that's bad for me. But the other thing is it's also bad for them because they're wasting their time too if it's exorbitant and constantly changing scope. Everybody listening to this knows that constantly changing scope is not good for a project. Never mind who's losing the money on it. It's bad for a project. Oh yeah. So yeah because you're just like you're just getting yanked around and you you're just going in every direction instead of toward a goal, so well,
0: and they're not getting anything done either, and you're usually having some discussions about it, and so nobody comes out of it happy because right. nobody's getting what they want right, so. The way that I set
1: my business up financially, it gives me tons of incentive to say things like, you know, after a reasonable amount of socializing, you know, I, I, I like socializing and I want to be that way with customers, but it's kind of like just, it's kind of like any kind of friendly meeting where there's some kind of agenda where at some point you have to get down to business and I'm, and it's on me to do that because I'm the one that will be directly uh, making less money, let's say, or spending more time to do something that I could do more quickly. So at a certain point, I'll, be, I'll say something like, this yeah, huh, this is great. Uh, so let's um, get to the agenda or you know we've only got a certain amount of time. I know you guys are busy, so let's cover the things we need to cover. And I just sort of politely facilitate meetings and keep them on track, keep everybody on track. If you have partnered with someone who you don't trust or you don't like or is a nitpicker or is a micromanager, it'll just be a disaster. But if you partner with people who are cool and chill and they get you and you guys are like connected... They're gonna be mm-hmm. glad you did that because they've got other things to do in their day too. And you know, everybody would love to just sit around and chat all day, but eventually we have to do some work. So it, yep. it just kind of balance I find it balances itself out and nobody ever has to think about money at all.
0: All right. I think we've covered that. Should we get to our first question out of the chat? It says, I'm trying to price my SaaS, which is software as a service for the lay people out there. And I'm trying to keep it simple, but I have lots of submodules. Is it too much to price per module? I want to keep it simple add this, remove this, your price can go up and down. Is this structure okay or should I force people to pick a package that includes a group of these?
2: Well, you, you get into the paradox of choice where you know if you have say the base and it, you know there's two tiers for that or three tiers for that, and then you have these optional add-ons and each one has their own tier or maybe you have one that's based on user count or uh, utility usage, which is like how much disk space you use or whatever. It can be overwhelming. I mean, a customer—not even a customer, a lead—at that point can come and be like, "I need to use this service, but I don't know how much I'm going to pay." And that fear, that uncertainty, is basically one of the big reasons why people just jump away and won't won't buy something. So it it might make sense to be like, "Oh, look, it's easy. You can just kind of pick, you know, what you want to use this and that." But you could be losing a lot of people that way. I think that's why a lot of SASs go towards the you know three to five different plans and just stick with that. Um, exception of like Amazon or places like that, where they they have the volume where they can do like a utility-based pricing or something like that. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up Amazon because that's one of the things I really don't like about
1: AWS is that you never know how much it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. You never know. Fortunately, it's usually so low it doesn't matter. But we've had months when like, whoops, we left that uh, instance running that we spun up for a test or something, and it's an extra five hundred bucks this month and or whatever and it's it's really distasteful to not know how much it's gonna cost so I basically agree with Eric it's like don't go too crazy the ones I like the most as a customer are the ones that let me do everything I want to do and maybe charge me extra for things like analytics reporting downloading reports of my data in spreadsheet form like features that only super users are gonna want maybe API access So stuff that only super users are going to want. So you can have kind of like a noob level and a power user or super user level and like an enterprise level. Um, It's kind of hard to say without knowing what the SaaS is, but I wouldn't go nuts with like a menu of Heroku where you can like throw in a database and throw in this and throw in that. And before you know it, you're spending like 800 bucks a month and you're like the unknown of how much it's going to cost every month is I don't personally like.
2: Yeah, I would stay away from per user, too. There's some merits to it sometimes, but for the most part, companies use users to, like, have actual people at different accounts. I I don't know a single company that has, like, even mentioned the idea of, like, oh, let's just share user accounts. And so they start sending around email and passwords, and now, you know, they're not paying you as much because they're using one user for 10 actual people. There's also a huge security risk. Like, that password has basically been leaked, and so if... Someone breaks into that account, your SaaS company is to blame, even though it's not you. So, like, I think my CRM charges per user, and it, the other thing is it's annoying. Like, I would love to hire someone to come in, you know, an hour or two a week to just kind of clean up stuff in my CRM, but that's another user, and it would basically double my price. Mm. It's like that's not worth it, you know. Mm. If I had to pay, you know, I'm paying like I uh, had twelve bucks whatever a month, you know, if I had to pay twenty four and I could have two user accounts or five user accounts then yeah, it'd be great. I would, I would upgrade and do that instead.
0: Yeah, I was just going to basically say the same thing that everybody else said. You can always make it easy to add uh, submodules after the fact. Um, the other thing is is that if it's not tiers, if it's kind of different users are going to use different feature sets, then you can also set it up that way. So you could have like the engineer option and the author option and the writer option and the personal trainer option or you know whatever and so they're all going to use different sub modules on the same app and then they get the same basic features and then you could have like custom but uh, yeah i would keep it uh, you know pretty straightforward and then as far as users yeah i think it should be more about usage so if they're taking more space or using more bandwidth or whatever is going to cost you money then find a way to put that into terms that they understand so that they they understand I'm paying for this level of usage instead of per user. Because if I set somebody up in there and then they never log in, I don't want to be paying for them. But if I'm one of those users that is uploading a ton of data and things like that, then the plan may uh, fit me a little bit better. But yeah, I, I agree with Eric. I don't really like the per user plan, but they're more of an issue for me as a small company or adding one more person then it is sometimes for the enterprises who just buy a huge block of users and then just go for it.
1: Yeah, I do. My main consulting gig right now is for SaaS, and I like the approach that we've taken there, which is similar to basically GitHub and Basecamp, where there's a a really simple cutoff. I'm sure it's very simple to code, because that's the thing. You don't want to put in a ton of complexity into your code base just to support different pricing (laughs) tiers, because you're going to want to change your pricing every so often. And if all of a sudden you have to like you have to be recoding the application because you want to offer a discount to listeners of the freelancer show, then that's bad. You want to do something super something that's really simple to implement, like oh you've hit your project limit. Uh, would you like to add more projects mm-hmm. or GitHub? You've hit your private repo limit. Would you like to add more repos? And unlimited public repos are free. You know, so simple things like in the SaaS, like one of the things is there's like a, a free tier where you can have one project, call it, um, but it's branded to this, the SaaS. So you can see what they built it with. You know, you see lots of people doing this. And then for at the first level of paid access, the rebranding is removed. So it's a more of a white label type of thing. But whatever you whatever you decide to do, what I'm saying is make sure that it's not going to complicate your code base. Do something super easy.
2: One well, other thing to remember is, you know, if you set complicated tiers now, you have to maintain those for as long as you have customers on those. If yes. you grandfather people in, mm-hmm. you might have seven or eight <clears throat> different styles of tiers, not necessarily tier levels, but just mm-hmm. the, the way the tiers are arranged or what features are, they get. And yep. I mean, I've done a few where it's like one group was grandfathered, and like there's like a second, like you know, the current ones, and even that was insane to try to figure out like, okay, who's getting what? Oh no, yeah. this doesn't apply to them. I've almost wanted to pay people to leave so
1: that we could. I mean, we're just spending like crazy money on dev time to support, you know, 10 grandfathered clients. It's like, can we just pay you guys a grand to go away? Or, or to switch to an or existing... To upgrade, yeah. yeah. And it's a major problem. That's a great point to bring up because once mm-hmm. those people are in there, you need to be careful. You know, if you, you put lifetime hosting or whatever the SaaS does, you put lifetime anything on there, you're on the hook.
0: Yeah, well, the other thing is having run a support department, tech support department, it's a burden there too because they get used to dealing with things with the current set of tiers. Yep. And so somebody calls in and they're the exception, then they have to escalate for simple issues sometimes because they don't know how to handle them because this person is just exceptional in one fairly meaningless way. Yeah, it almost has to go to the CEO. Yeah. Yeah,
2: Yeah, like for us, like our cell phone, like we have AT&T now, but we had Singular who got bought out by at mm-hmm. We have a plan and a bunch of stuff that's grandfathered in so much that, like, no one can give us a straight answer of stuff at, if we go in. And our Dude, that actual was like 12 years ago. I know, right? Like, our actual <laughs> bill has a bunch of, like, it looks like almost like the internationalization, like, please insert message here type things because their data doesn't even have, like, what our plan name is called anymore. Like, it's been purged. You know, but that's the thing. Like we've been with them for, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, about ten years, probably, probably twelve years. You know, and they have to support us with that. And I know their their customer support system says they're very have a very big unsmiley face for our account because it's <laughs> so hard for them to deal with us. But you know, we we haven't switched. And we're probably not. Yeah, at the SaaS I'm working with, we make decisions all the time about, like, cruft.
1: Like, if, if the business people, uh, the CFO, the marketing people want to do something, one of the big red flags for me is if it's going to cause create cruft on the database or make something that's really complicated to uh, where we have to embed a lot of business logic in the code, that scares me. So, I mean, we're probably beating a dead horse here, but um, just keep in mind that the decisions you make now, you're going to be stuck with until the next rewrite. Yep. And maybe after that.
0: One other thing I want to go for here is uh, matching volumes of use or features. One thing that you can do is you can actually, as you add new features, allow people to beta test them and let them know that they're going to become paid features in the future, and that way you can get an idea of what the usage levels look like before you set the pricing on them. And so then what happens is you can basically roll in. So instead of saying, I'm charging for this usage level, you just charge for the feature. So you charge for the submodule, and then what you lose on one customer, you more than make up for on another.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's that's probably so hard. And like, I, I can think of one in particular, like they charge based on the number of widgets you create in a month. And I'm like, yeah, one month I might make two, but the next month I might make 100 if I'm doing a huge marketing push. And mm-hmm. it's like, what plan do I hit? Do I need to pay more to be on a hiring plan for the, the one or two times a year I'm over? Or can I sit on the little one? And that's kind of the the same thing as earlier with kind of the utility stuff is I don't know how much money I have to I I don't know how much I'm gonna be charged each month, you know. I would kind of lean to having the higher plan just so I have to deal with it. And I think a lot of businesses do that. But that's kind of like something to think about too. I think unlocking features as you go up in the plan levels, I think that's a good way to do it, you know, because okay. it's like Oh, you want integration with some enterprise system? That's going to be a bit more, and people who would need that are going to pay more. Like that's presumably the business they're in. But I mean, it's hard. It's hard to figure out what what are the actual, you know, probably two or three points that your customers actually care about, and that's actually going to, you know, trigger them to yes, this is worth paying more.
1: I mean, you could always ask your users. Like I've been on a couple of beta tests for products that were pre-release that we had tons of input into how it was priced. You know, everything, same exact conversations we're having now. But, you know, we were using it and it was like, dude, if you charge me by PDF, you know, per PDF or, or per processing, I'm never going to use this because I'm going to do all my work outside of this and then I'm just going to upload it to you to process the thing at the end. You don't want that. You want me to be using your thing a lot. You want me to you'd be talking about your, your SAS to other people and saying, man, this thing's made my life better. You don't want to penalize me for using it more. So you have to draw the line somewhere. But, you know, more projects is one that doesn't happen all the time. You're not spinning up most people probably aren't spinning up tons of new projects. It's this wall that they'll hit way down the line. Like I think with Basecamp I didn't hit the project limit for probably the first year. And by then I was just so addicted to it that I was happy to pay for it. Same with GitHub. I didn't hit the limit for, I'm sure I didn't hit the private limit for over a year.
2: So by the time I don't even I have it, a private account. Oh, wow. I've been using them since what, they launched 2008 or whatever. I have hundreds mm-hmm. some odd public repos but I, have, I haven't ever paid them. It's all my open source stuff. Mm life man for sure but by the time you get there you're like I've been using this thing
1: for free for a year and it's completely changed my workflow I'm going to happily pay them 29 bucks yep. a month so talk to your users I mean they're going to they're gonna tell you which features they think are awesome they'll probably come up with features that you didn't even think were that big a deal they totally prioritize things differently get their feedback give them a free account for life and say hey what would you pay for
0: maybe not for life <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say didn't we just caution against that <laughs> yeah yeah any other questions from uh, the audience out there? you can go ahead and just type them in the chat room. This is sort of sort of off of the the first thing we were
1: talking about, which was trust in the relationship and scope creep and how to deal with that and keep people on track when you have basically charged you know a flat whatever fifty thousand dollars for the for some result and the thing that's really not obvious to people about that a lot of times you know how how could they they think how could I possibly do this? they're thinking of these meetings where they you know where clients are constantly sort of wanting them to massage pixels and design. And uh, I recently did a proposal where I called it straight out in the proposal that the client was not allowed to give any design input. I mean they could. they were allowed to, to I, I was like your your input is welcome on the design, but it's probably just a waste of your time and my time. The goal of the project, It was a a mobile redesign, mobile retrofit. The goal of the project is to increase sales across all channels. Uh, That's what I signed my name to. We are going to increase sales by 5% across the entire business. Mm -hmm. In order for me to do that, you have to let me be the expert about mobile design. You be the expert about selling your products. And if you have input about a design or something that's really specific to your vertical, the, the industry, which is a strange industry... I'm happy to hear that, but I have veto power over all design decisions, so we're really not going to have design reviews. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, We're going to look at uh, analytics. We're going to look at numbers turning up or down, and I'll make the mobile site look basically like the desktop site. So the branding will be similar, but that was that. And the guy was like, sure, if you can raise my sales by 5%, that's huge. So, I mean, think of the difference between that. You know, designers should be doing stuff like this. Designers should have some kind of tangible outcome. You know, that's the point. I mean, they're giving you tangible money. Why can't you turn around and say, I'll give you tangible money back, you know, tangible value? I think that's an important thing to do. So you can imagine if the weekly meetings or whatever were around the sales numbers and not around the color blue I picked, that there'd be a lot less scope creep.
0: (laughs) I like it. And the thing that's interesting to me about that is that it it really is this... uh results based thing and yeah I mean most businesses if you could raise their sales by 5% it just makes a lot of sense that yeah I mean I don't care what you do you know if you're standing on your head and singing songs with bad words in them or something I I mean I don't care as long as as long as I don't wind up paying for it later on yeah within reason so you know I'm not going
1: (coughs) to do anything distasteful or obnoxious or you know it's going to be basically like the desktop site but mobile friendly Yep. And I predict based on their current numbers that that is going to at least increase their sales by 5%, if not significantly more. So I'm like perfectly comfortable committing to that as the lift. I mean, their mobile traffic is just, it's, their site is terrible on the mobile and their bounce rate is absurd. So if I can bring that down even a little, it's which I know I'm 100% confident I, I can, then it's going to be amazing.
0: So the next question along the lines of what we were talking about is I was planning on charging the 20% of the customers, 80% of the revenue. Those super users usually use up all the resources, et cetera. Three tiers the plan. I kind of like the three tiers. Typically what you want to do though is, is I, I wind up setting the highest price to be like the maximum level I'm willing to support. And then I put that price kind of high. And then I try and drive people to the middle price on, on a three-tier plan. And then the, the lowest level is what's kind of the minimum thing that, you know, the people who just want some bare utility are going to want. And so what you get in the middle is what most people are going to need. Yeah, yeah.
2: so in that case, you're basically price anchoring, using the top tier to yep. make the middle tier look attractive.
0: And some yeah. people are going to be power users and want the top tier, and that's fine. Yeah. But then it has to be worth it to me to support them. I'm trying to remember. I think I know Gumroad
2: did a survey of their customers, and so most of these are like download or products. Like they're not SaaSes, mm-hmm. but I think it's they they recommended out of that out of all the data, they recommended three tiers. I think it was 1x, so what the price of like you know the normal book is. Middle tier would be I think it was 2.2x of the first yeah, one, yeah, it was. and then the third was five. Yeah, and so we'll say you know ten dollars, twenty two dollars, fifty dollars. I um, mean, I said that that worked the best, but you can play with that. You can have, in those numbers, you can have a $500 tier, um, and that's where it's like a, a whole step and above, and that can actually make your $50 tier look really attractive. Or yeah. you can make your, you know, lop off your low-end tier and make it look like it's a very high-value uh, exclusive service. Pricing's hard. You have to. There's a lot of psychology, and there's a lot of, you know, internal soft stuff, in our head of how stuff works and value works. Best thing is, I think, like what Jonathan said, like make it easy to change your prices so you can try different ideas and see what actually works with your audience and the value your app would create. Mm. On that SaaS, we
1: have to do a lot of exceptions to pricing. So maybe we'll partner with somebody who is really well known and we want to offer a special price just to that person's audience. Um, Other times we'll have like a Black Friday promotion or a Cyber Monday promotion. And that stuff is, I mean, marketers want to do it and it works. So you should let them do it. You should support them technically in in executing that stuff, the other thing on the uh, on the the pricing tiers approach, the uh, the one 2.2 and the 5x is one thing. I that's something I do commonly, and that will typically drive people to the center one. But there's another thing you can do where you try and drive people to the top one, where you have you know maybe a 1x and then a 1.5x and a 1.75x. And then I, that's something I, don't typically, I wouldn't typically do with like a productized offering or a book or something like that. But that's something that I'll typically do inside of a proposal for custom work where I'll say, look, here's the option that you asked for. This is verbatim what you asked for and here's how it's going to achieve the goals that we agree to on the phone. That's 50000 Then I'm going to say, all right, now there's some other things that I identified that while we're in there would be, I think, very beneficial to you guys. And that's seventy-five grand. You know, it's all the stuff from the first one plus the stuff from the second one, all inclusive, and then the third plan would be like eighty-seven or eighty-five around there, and it'll add like something that's just you know like uh, three months of support, three months of handoff, like some additional thing. It's just a, it's basically an upsell, and what you're doing is you're doing two things there. If you have that in a proposal, the first thing is you're preventing sticker shock from happening. So you've had a conversation with them, and you guys are pretty much on the same page. You send them a proposal, what's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to go and look at the price. Almost always. They're going to scan looking for the dollar sign. If I have three dollar signs in there, now they have to go back and read and see what the difference is. So now they go back and they read and they go, okay, here's the thing we actually asked for. It's a reasonable price but here's some other things that if it so happens that they have more budget than the base price, they might actually consider the higher ones and it's very common to sell a, a, a second or third option. Um, Just because they had more money in the budget and they perceive the things that you added as valuable. If they didn't have the extra budget and like option one is cutting it close, then they'll say, okay, you know, those other things sound great, but we haven't got the budget, so we'll go with the first option. So what you're doing is giving them options instead of like this ultimatum, which is what I see a regular proposal as. Regular proposal is like $80,000, take it or leave it. You know, it's a little bit too binary for me and it allows people
2: to have a conversation uh, about the proposal, yeah, I think it's. I think Alan Weiss says it changes the conversation from, you know, should I work with Jonathan to how should I work with Jonathan. Yeah, this is total. Yeah, I totally yeah. get this from Weiss. It yeah, works. It, too. But yeah, that's when I did proposals. I did that. I'm trying to remember. I kind of had a format, and then I got away from proposals. But I think it was the first one was bare bones, and I mean like bare bones. Like if the, if there's stuff that can be done manually, typically went in that one. The second one was bare bones, but some of that gets automated. So instead of, you know, them sending email by hand, the system would do it for them. Right. Um, and the third one was those two plus adding like some big opportunities, like let's enter this new market type of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the third one because even though it was a higher end, it kind of would let them open their eyes and think like, oh, we never thought about, about that. That's going to bring up, yeah. you know, an extra 2 million revenue a year. Okay. That, that we can find the budget for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked with somebody who called these, uh, option one is the no-brainer,
1: option two is the staged bet, and option three was the uh, game changers. Mm. So, yeah, you know, it just gives you, it, it, it's a technique that works. There's another one that, that I recently learned, re- recently read about, and I really like, although I haven't used it yet, so your mileage may vary, but Blair Enns from Win Without Pitching, he's a big fan of value-based fees, but he also thinks that there's a place for hourly Uh, which I'm not a fan of, but um, he makes a great point, which is one of your options can be, the first option can be uh, we estimate that it's going to be X amount of hours at at my hourly rate, and so that will probably be, let's just say, 50 grand, but that's an estimate, and I'm not guaranteeing any results. The only thing I'm guaranteeing is that I'm going to do the work that I said I'm going to work, and I'm going to do the hours that I said I would work on. Option two is I do the exact same stuff. We go for the same outcome, but I give you a fixed bid of $85,000 so i'll take on the scope creep risk and have a a totally different it's a totally different billing model totally different risk profile for them because they can say just like i was saying before about amazon you never know how much it's going to cost which drives you crazy uh if you're spending big dollars on custom development you know 100 200 dollars an hour and you don't know how many hours it's going to take really super scary so they might say you know what I'd rather be a, a you know burden hand type of person and i'll just pay the 85 and you take on the risk and we'll just work until it's done.
0: So, so that's a really like
1: A, a $35,000 insurance policy for them. It's a, you're paying an mm-hmm. insurance premium. It's a premium, yeah. And uh, if they're up for that, so this is, this is a really cool technique for like people I'm coaching have a really hard time transitioning from hourly mentality to value-based fee mentality and they tend to underbid the value-based fees like crazy. So this is a perfect technique for people who are making the transition because you can, it immediately gives you an option it's, you're not doing different work. You're doing the same work. You just say, hey, we can either build it like this, and I think it'll probably cost you $50,000, but maybe it'll be more. Who knows? Uh, or we can just lock it in. I mean, it's kind of like eBay, like the buy now price. Mm-hmm. It's like the buy now price versus the auction. Uh, so I, that's something that I'm looking forward to testing. But like I said, I haven't tried it.
0: I did it the other way with my current client. I went to them, and I did a proposal, and I said, here's the fixed bid because I think it's going to take this long, and, you know, then this is my weekly rate, or you could just pay my weekly rate. And then they wound up just paying the weekly rate. And it, yeah, it cost them like three extra weeks. Is that because they thought you, you would get done earlier without doing the fixed bid, or they thought like you are buffering the fixed bid a bit? I don't know. I think mostly it just came down to that they weren't ready to lay out all the cash. Got At it. the beginning. Yeah, the cash flow, pro- the cash flow they, thing. They could get problem not get approval that. Right. So they said, we're going to do it the other way, and I said, that's fine, but if it takes me a couple extra weeks, you're going to have to pay for it. Right. And they did. So, Looks like we got some more questions. Yeah, Kai asked a question. What's a marketing lead generation channel that's been successful for you that you hadn't expected to be successful for your consulting business? Podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> same. I was going to say the same thing. It's amazing. I, I have to say, so I did teachme2code.com for a long time. It's still there. All the videos are there. They're just out of date. But I got tons of work off of those videos. I've talked about it on the show before. I had another show called Rails Coach and it was, uh, I mean, I was just talking about Rails and I was just doing it for the fun of it and I, I got two or three leads off of that. People who were listening to it, trying out Rails, decided that they needed to know a whole lot more in order to build a real app and then they called me up and said, can you do it instead? Or can you do it and can I kind of Watch the commits, <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, and that just worked out. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say having a, an open source project that you started has been helpful for me in the past as well. I got a lot of leads from mm-hmm. doing that. I'm, you know, and Eric's done the same. But I mean, speaking gigs is amazing. Doing live speaking gigs is like there's there's no repl- if you're if you're not like you know just if the if the notion of getting up in front of a crowd of people and sharing your passion about whatever it is that you do doesn't scare the pants off you, I urge you to do it because there's nothing like the connection that you make you know when two people are in a room and they're just vibing on the, the passion and the, the, um, the body language and the whole thing. It's just really easy to make a connection with people uh, when you're standing there. And in the, in the context of the sort of sage on stage where you're up there, you're presented as an expert like automatically. So it's amazing. You, you, I, I've gotten huge gigs just walking right off a stage, and a line of people come up to give me their cards, and they're all like ready to go.
0: That's been really good. That's funny because I have not had that same kind of result. I've gotten one call from speaking, and I think they basically went down the speaker's list for Rubyconf. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm talking about stuff where people actually come
1: up to me after the talk in person. Uh-huh. But, you know, like I, I do it all like, the time. Is it towards your peers or towards your clients? You know, who, who's yeah. the audience? That's true. In fact, that's something that I'm shifting personally. Like, I, for me, it was uh, all my talks up until pretty much this year. Pretty much all my talks were very much to my peers, people that do my kind of work, web stuff, basically, uh, software development. And what would happen is people who, you know, project managers and lead devs and stuff like that would come to the conference like, you know, I don't know, South by Southwest or Adobe Max or Web Directions or whatever. So they'd come up after and they, you know, and the talks would be technical and they'd come up after and ask me questions about it. And they would end up making the introduction to the buyer inside the company. That's usually the, usually the way it would work. Recently, I've stopped doing that, and, or not stopped completely, but somewhat, and I'm, I'm actively looking for conferences that are in a vertical. So instead of doing a conference of web developers, I'm going to a conference of like restaurant IT people. So like the whole conference is all restaurant people, and I can focus my talk specifically on that vertical and what's interesting about mobile for mm. restaurants. And the, the people that go to a conference like that aren't you know like a mid-tier pay grade you know somebody under a director it's all directors and above and you know i mean there are cios in there from like net global restaurant chains so that's like amazing that's a that's those are the buyers as opposed to like me getting a sort of trojan horse in through a, a project manager or a dev lead that kind of thing so i like that a lot better it's more directly relevant to the kind of stuff i'm doing now since i'm doing more strategy than um Hands on
0: coding. I'd like to know how you adapt what you do to. I guess you just talk about what you do in the context of what they care about.
1: mm -hmm. Yeah, if at all possible, I always try to send out a questionnaire to people who are going to be there ahead of time. Uh huh. And I do customize, I mean, a lot of the stuff is, is pretty general purpose. I mean, like the whole notion of mobile and the bigger wireless computing revolution is it's doing the same kind of thing to almost every industry, virtually every aspect of society is getting like ripped apart and remade. So they're almost certainly in one of them. (laughs) So I can, I can just focus on focus the example slides on particular things in their industry. So like at the at the food conference I went to, it was called MurTech in Vegas. I did a bunch of examples that were based on what happened to the newspaper industry. But how could the same thing that happened to the newspaper industry happen to the food industry when you can't eat online? So you can read your news online, but you can't eat a burger online. So they probably feel insulated from that disruption. Mm-hmm. But so I was like, huh, are they? Or can I come up with an example where they're not? And in fact, I was able to come up with an example where they're not. I mean Amazon's delivering food now. They just announced like yesterday that they're in Manhattan they're delivering food to Amazon Prime members, like prepared food. So there are all sorts of ways that even a restaurant can get ripped apart by uh, the changes going on in mobile. Anyway, but I do to answer your question, I you, I try to send out a questionnaire first. Uh, I talk to the conference organizers, I find out if there's like a what the main trade publication is for that group and I read it. I use the language that they use and Oh, like wow presentation, like I, you know, ahead of time I made sure I knew, you know, like don't call them chain restaurants, they're multi-unit restaurants. Chain restaurants is a bad word, so I didn't want to go up on stage and put my foot (laughs) in my mouth and say, hey, you you run a chain restaurant, Mr. Wendy's guy, and have him be like super ticked off because no, it's a multi-unit restaurant. Right. So, yeah, I do all that research and customize it to their space, their language.
0: Huh.
1: I mean, it takes a lot of work, but I'm getting paid for it, so.
0: Right. Do you usually get invited to speak at conferences or do you submit a proposal to speak at the conference?
1: Um, These days, it's almost always an invite. Okay. But not at first. At first, I'd go to the opening of an envelope. It was like Mm -hmm. I'd talk anywhere.
0: Yeah. All right, the next question is, do you guys still think that Get Clients Now is the best approach to the fill the pipeline phase? I'm basically just starting freelancing, a.k.a. almost no clients, and heard an older episode about it. Or do you have new insights about that? Yeah, I actually still do
2: it. I wrapped up one session of it, I guess, two weeks ago. I haven't started a new one just because uh, I have a full time client right now, so I don't, yeah, I honestly don't have the bandwidth to do it too. But yeah, I think it's great. I've modified it a little bit. I don't commit to as much stuff every day and all that, but um, I think having a system and having some kind of daily accountability and weekly accountability of are you doing your marketing or are you just say you're doing it, um, I think that's big no matter what phase your business is in.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say that if you're gonna follow Get Clients Now or book yourself solid or, you know, use the they vary a little bit from one to the other, but if you're being consistent, is is really the the kicker is really the thing that's gonna pay off for finding clients.
2: Yeah, and uh, C.J. Hayden, the author of Get Clients Now, she has another book. I think it's um, just an ebook only, but it's kind of along the lines of once you've done Get Clients Now and you know how it works, this is like taking it to the next level and. The big thing I got out of that was you figure out, like, really, like, how many clients do you need a year? Do you need 10, do you need 20, do you need 30? Taking that, working your numbers, figuring out, like, okay, so in this year, in order to reach that goal, I need to write 50 blog posts, I need to go to six conferences, you know, that sort of thing. And actually having a a bigger picture than just the four week tactical in the weeds. But I found the Get Clients Now stuff still works good. I have my own template for it. I still use it. And it's been, what, eight years now I've been using it?
0: Maybe seven. All right. If you could give yourself two or three bits of advice when you first started out, what would it be? Specialize. Yep. Charge more. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the two I was going to say. I was going to say charge more first, but...
2: Um, I think another one is, like, don't be so afraid of screwing up. Like, if you're, you know, you got to go out and make mistakes. You've got to try something and see if it's going to work. Don't be afraid mm-hmm. of saying something wrong to a client or whatever and never do anything at all.
1: Yep. try to work with people that you like, you know, try it. We've already said this, but you know, I know when you are like just starting out and you're trying to make ends meet and keep the lights on and all that stuff, you pretty much want to take all comers. But when you're doing that, if you do that, make sure that you realize that you're doing that and that that's not the way it has to be. And that you're in a transition, you're gonna try and transition from that, just getting the money to pay the bills um while you're doing that, take note of what you love about certain clients and what you hate about other clients and just try and as you get a little bit more cash in the bank, try and skew more toward the ones you like instead of the ones you don't like. I mean it sounds so obvious, but I hear it all the time from people they just like shocked when they think. Of someone freelancing saying no to somebody saying no to a lead it's like mind boggling for people uh, but don't be afraid to do that you gotta keep your lights on, you gotta pay your bills but always be trying to get clients you like better and yep. specializing helps with that, raising your prices helps with that all that stuff works together to attract
2: clients that are going to be perfect for you And actually thinking about that because I, I did this I guess about a year ago uh figure out how much like, how much income revenue you need to pay your business bills, pay yourself a, a decent salary, and just to live on. You know, not not where you're improving your lifestyle, saving, investing all that. Just like the minimum. Figure out what that is, and kind of back into like what's your rate, like how much you need to work, and then take what Jonathan said, like that's how much of the we're gonna call them bad clients. That's how much of bad clients you need. Once you get above that then you either need to work on marketing to get the good clients or you need to work with good clients. So if you're, at, if you're above the minimum and a new bad client comes to you, you turn them down and you basically do that and eventually those good clients will cycle in and those will be the people that keep you at your minimum and now all of a sudden you have all these great clients. Yep. Yeah, I was just listening to someone yesterday talk about how she had been working for herself for 20
1: years and hated her job and like can you imagine you built this job for yourself and you hate it. <laughs> it's crazy. So, you know, just be aware of the fact that you are in control of it. You can control the direction it goes. For someone who's just starting out, they're not going to appreciate that really. It's that's for someone who's been doing it for a while and is just like super busy, they're broke, they're stressed out, and it's a different stage to be at. But this particular topic what Eric was just talking about is very very, I think very well covered in Book Yourself Solid, like the first section or two of that book does a great Uh job of exercises and worksheets that you can go through to identify your ideal client. Not your target market necessarily, but like a target market to a certain extent. Maybe it's restaurants, maybe it's pizza or whatever. Maybe it's dentists, but also within that, your perfect Personality type, like do you like people that are chatty or do you prefer people who get right down to business? You know there'll be things that you of course you always like You're like you always like people who pay early and things like that, but it's certainly worth the money to grab that book and read just the first section or two about ideal kind of, it's the what does he call it is a red velvet rope policy
0: yep yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, and honestly, yeah. I, when I started, I got Book yourself Solid and get clients now from the library. And I ended up like renewing it like the maximum like three times or whatever. Like I didn't even like spend the money to buy the books until I actually the business generated the revenue to buy them for me. Oh, that's interesting. What's a library? <laughs> Where I get all my ebooks from now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a fire trap.
0: Good coffee, free Wi-Fi, quiet. Yeah. So one last question, and then we'll do some picks. And I guess it's not really a question so much as Kai's advice was to get a mastermind group. Uh, are you part of mastermind groups? And what is your advice regarding them? Big fan, but I am spoiled because I'm in a
1: couple of amazing ones. So I know that, uh, and I'm not in very many different ones. I, I've only got, I think, uh, two what I would call proper masterminds where it's just birds of a feather chatting about how they get business done. I'm in a couple of others that are business, just specifically business-related or paid membership. And other people who are in them with me are in more than I am, and they say how a lot of them are just like a ghost town or a complete waste of time, and that there are really no contributions. There, maybe spammy is too strong, but it's it's very networky. No is he? No, no, yeah, perfect, yeah. Yep. So, so you want a you want a good one, and if you find a good one, I mean, it has completely changed my business. Yeah. It is. I have not. I've been solo since two thousand, late 2005, early 2006, and there was absolutely nobody, nobody in my personal life or professional life that I could talk to about any of this stuff. And the speed that I have been able to, just the increase in velocity of my business now compared to before is jaw-dropping. And... You know, it's just stupid stuff like, you know, can I get another pair of eyes on this sales page? Or what do you guys think about this? Or pricing questions. What do you think I should price this at? And just having like a group of, you know, I think a good mix is like maybe 20 people at the most where you get like people you trust that have either done it before or doing the same thing as you. Maybe they're ahead of you. Maybe they're a little behind you. Um, It's all super beneficial. Even, Even giving other people advice Makes me understand my own
0: business better. It's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I can't even tell you how many times it's like, I gotta write down what I just said, cause, <laughs> cause you know, it's exactly what I needed to hear. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I, I am part of one mastermind group. I've actually been a part of several others, uh, varying effectiveness. And I've actually started one of my own and then shut it down, uh, just cause it wasn't quite what I needed but the mastermind group I'm in right now is you can actually go listen to our meetings. We do talk about a few things outside but uh, outside of the chat, but for the most part, we just record it. You can go to entreprogrammers.com. That's like entre, like entrepreneurs, programmers, and we talk for a couple hours every week, and that has been so helpful and so useful, and we actually have an email list that we email back and forth uh, several times a day on. I've thought about doing a local one, yeah, uh, the issue that I've had is that I've done that twice and it always just turns into we're gonna get lunch together and no no there's no accountability, there's not a whole lot of help going on, and so it just it turns out that it's just not worth doing. But I think that really just boiled down to the people that I brought into it, some of whom wanted that the kind of environment that I wanted, and some of whom just weren't comfortable giving that kind of, you know, frank feedback in person. Mm-hmm. If know, anybody's but... if
1: anybody's thinking about starting one on that to play off of that point, a couple of the different the, the two that I'm in that I think are really good are there's like an onboarding process. You don't just say hey let me it's a Slack room yeah. they're both Slack rooms and and in both cases there's like a vetting process almost. It's it's like uh, here's a sort of code of conduct. Here's what's cool. Here's what's not cool. And I mean, in fact, one of the rooms didn't start off that way. I was in one of the rooms before that sort of, it's not a code of conduct. That sounds like not fun. It's fun, but it just sort of lays the ground rules of what the social mores are in this space. Um, Since you don't have any visual cues, you don't have any body language or anything like that. It really helped me be more comfortable in the room that I had already been in for a while because, you know, I'm like, geez, I'd really like to ask somebody about this coaching page that I'm about to put up but I don't want them to think that I'm trying to sell it to them I just I just really want feedback on it and I didn't you know it was like there were some situations it was uncommon but there were situations where it was potentially kind of awkward so I think you know to Chuck's point of like maybe it was just the wrong group of people that you can control that somewhat by having basically a velvet rope right you know mm-hmm. like you must be this tall to ride.
0: Yeah and it's not just who you get in the group but I like the idea of actually saying this is how how often and the other ways that we just expect you to contribute in this group, and you know I know mastermind groups that yeah I mean if you don't show up for like two meetings in a row you're out, and things like that. But then you you really have to find that right mix of people and have the right idea of what everybody expects to get from it. So and it's hard it's, like, it's really hard. That's with any community. I mean it has
2: to gel. The people have yeah. to get along. The expectations have to be set. You know there has to be boundaries either talked about or informally set and consequences of overstepping it, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I think one really important thing is if you're gonna join or you're gonna start a mastermind group, is at least for the very, I'll say first month, keep it fluid. Like if you're not getting value out of it, if you don't get into it, you're not don't feel like a member. Basically any reason if it doesn't feel right, you should be able to leave or or you should leave or quit or mm-hmm. whatever. Some people in some areas it just it's not a good fit for that stuff and the whole point of it is you need to get value out of it and be providing value to other people and if that doesn't happen then it's worthless to you. So
0: Yeah. I, I just want to back this up. I don't know if I'm gonna make Eric uncomfortable saying this, but uh we were in a mastermind group and he he pulled out of it because he wasn't getting what he needed. And you know there were no hard feelings. It just wasn't what he needed. And so if you have that understanding up front then, you know, again it's not socially awkward or whatever for somebody to pull out you know it's just okay well i need something a little different from what this group is providing and everybody else can find it insanely helpful
2: yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's just like with your clients i mean there might be a client that's a great person they have a great business but they're not a good fit for you uh, working with them would be make things worse for you and them so it's best not to work with them you know refer them to someone where they would be a good fit with
0: yeah they may have a great personality sorry it's me, it's not you, that's right. <laughs> One thing you guys kind of
2: mentioned but didn't really touch on there's mastermind groups like I see it as like kind of a a community chat or like a community where it's you know twenty thirty forty people maybe at the most, uh-huh. but there's other masterminds where it's like maybe five people, and that's a very rigorous like we're meeting every week or bi weekly or monthly, and that's very like heavy on the accountability i've I've noticed there's distinctions between that I can. I've been multiple of the kind of just a community of people that are like-minded, uh, but the actual committing to a large, like, focused, accountable mastermind, like, I can do, I think, depending on the se- sequence, like, one or two. And beyond that, like, it's it's intense. Like, that's, those are the ones that I feel really, really push me to be the best I can be, and I can push the other members to be the best they can be. yeah And that kind of going cycling way back to the beginning, like, that requires a lot of trust on the entire community, like, the four or five people in there. And most of those you don't just like happen into, like there's not like a job posting and you just join one. It's typically people you've worked with or you know, and you have a good degree of trust with and you kind of like, Hey, how about we meet regularly to talk about business and kind of get really deep in like, you know, sharing numbers, sharing fears, sharing problems, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you don't have that kind of people cultivating that relationship is actually a good thing, even if it doesn't end up in a mastermind group, um, mm-hmm. just having, having someone you can email and say, Hey, I'm having this problem with this client. What do I
0: do? Yeah, I've actually got a couple of friends that sometimes I'll just email and I'll be like, hey, can I buy you lunch? And, you know, just get feedback on stuff. This is what I'm thinking about. These are the things I'm struggling with. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point to bring up, which is
1: that, in the, like in, especially in the smaller room that I'm in, it's maybe 10 people. Like, we let it all hang out. Everybody knows everything. Just number like sales numbers. Guy came in today, just got fired. You know, like, he still had a day job, and now he's, you know, I mean, just, like, everything. It, it's, like, very, like, I've never met anybody in the room, and I wasn't friends with any of them before. I, I had a, a working relationship with, a very short working relationship with the person who originally invited me. And these are like some of my best friends now. It's, I'm going to, like, one of their weddings, if I can get away, but it's, like, it is, uh-huh. you know, it's probably been, I think it's been a year now. And it's been transformative for everyone and very, very intense. In, but in a, I mean in a good way. So if you're not getting that, keep looking for it because it's really beneficial. If you're yep. in one that's just kind of like, meh, jokes and gifts of cats and stuff, that's great. But you need to also be getting like, I don't know, I feel like we all work in our basement now. And it's like there's no, like where do you get that? You know, we all kind of have weird jobs. There's a lot of us, but it's still pretty weird. You know, it's like a new thing. So it's hard to, like I can't talk with anybody in my family about any of this stuff. They all have like regular
2: jobs. If you feel like you have imposter syndrome or you like, what is it called, the highlights reel, like where everyone else is being successful and you're not, a mastermind group will really help you with that because you'll see the people that you think are superstars, they struggle with the same thing. It might be at a larger scale, but they struggle with the same thing. And sometimes the stuff they struggle with, you're just like, that's nothing, here's how you fix it. But seeing that everyone is just people too, well, most people are just people. You know, I think that can actually really help out, you know, especially during those hard times when you're going through stuff.
0: Yep. All right. Picks? Uh, yep. Eric.
2: Okay, I got two. I have a feeling I'm going to steal one of Jonathan's, but whatever. <laughs> First one is a pick from Itty Biz called Pay Your Love First. Basically, it's a, a blog post. You, you really should read it, especially if you kind of have, uh, like I have a split personality for my business. I have my product side. and also have my consulting side. Um, but it's basically like when you have that kind of that tension of like, what should I focus on? Should I work on A? Should I work on B? Um, it's a pretty interesting. Um, she has kind of a, a, a nice analogy going through with it. So it's I think it's based on another article which she links in the beginning, but uh, read them both. They're really good. And the second pick is the Consulting Pipeline Podcast by Philip Morgan. Uh, he launched it recently. There's, I don't know how many episodes now. Looks like there's this Jonathan Stark who's on the latest one.
0: <laughs> what a punk.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean I'm on one of them. I don't so know how full about that. that recording. But it's some good stuff. I listened to what is it, the estimating market size ones. There's two of those. And then there's um some stuff on actually positioning and really focusing in on like how do you specialize. It's like a, a gradual kind of spiral iterative process, which is really interesting. I like what he's doing with it because it's you know, you got these interview ones, but you also have these really short focus like here's how you do X or here's something about topic Y. So those are my two picks. Nice. Awesome. Jonathan, so you almost stole one of my picks.
1: My first pick is also from Philip. Philip Morgan has a product called Drip Sherpa, and we talked about Drip at length last week uh, about sort of a powerful, you know, marketing automation tool that it is. It's sort of deceptively simple on the surface, and I personally found that when I went in and started using it, I I probably paid for it for six months before I actually started using it because I was a little overwhelmed with the way it worked because I was coming from MailChimp, and the structure is just fundamentally different, and it was really hard. I I just felt like every time I was doing something, I was doing it wrong, and I was going to regret having it set up wrong, so I just never did anything. And right around that same time, Philip came out with this product called Drip Sherpa, where he basically offers you concierge service to kind of train you on it, get you set up, uh, tell you how to get things done with it so you can get up and running pretty quickly. And if I had paid for it in the first month that I got Drip, I would have saved, you know, who knows how much opportunity cost in like six months of of wasted 50 bucks a month on Drip or however much I'm paying. So check out Drip Sharpa if you are interested in Drip and you don't know where to get started. That's probably how I would characterize that. And the other thing is, Brennan Dunn has publicly announced a Double Your Freelancing conference, which is in September in Norfolk, Virginia, if I remember correctly. That's yes, September 16th and 18th in Norfolk, Virginia, and there are uh, only 200 seats. So uh, if you're going to be in that area in September and you want to totally crush your business <laughs> it's like tons of great speakers i'm speaking at it there's there's a lot of great speakers Brennan speaking of course It's just a million just go to the page and it's an amazing lineup uh, that link is double your freelancing.com conf c-o-n-f and i hope to see you there
0: all right i've got a couple of picks the first one is if you're a programmer uh, i've been really enjoying lately the code newbie podcast It's by Saranya Barak. She's on the Ruby Rogues podcast. It's just a great podcast. I probably picked it before, but I'm going to pick it again. And then I've also been listening to Michael Hyatt's podcast, This Is Your Life, and I really enjoy that. So, yeah, go check those out. I guess that's all we've got, so we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up. Thank you all for coming. Uh, We'll do it again next month. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit dot com to learn more would you like to join the conversation with the freelancer show panelists and their guests want to support the show we have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time sign up at freelancershow.com slash form